Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have special guest Josh Lohman, founder and chief creative officer at Goldfront Category Design Studio. Welcome, everyone, to the final episode of Category Creative Podcast. Uh, we are uh, going to change gears uh, going forward, but this is the kind of celebratory last episode, and we have together uh, with me, Josh Lohman. Um, Josh, do you want to uh, introduce yourself real quick? Yeah. Hi, Gil. Um, my name is Josh Lohman. I'm the founder of Goldfront. We are the first ever category design studio, and that means that we help um, mostly startups or pre-IPO tech companies create and own their own category. And we're, we have a, about half of us are here in San Francisco, a few down in LA, and then strewn about. But we uh, have, being in San Francisco and in this business for quite a while, we've helped so many um, amazing category creators do what they do and help them with their strategic narrative and then creative execution after that. So Slack, Uber, Clary, Newzella, Qualtrics, um, Sentinel One. And, um, and for me, I live here in San Francisco with my wife and two kids and my 17-year-old dog that I just bought a stroller for so I can take him to the park. And um, yeah, I'm just very happy to be here. Thank you, uh, thank you for joining. And uh, it's no surprise that you know we decided to do the last episode. First of all, we decided to do it one on one because of your experience and what you've done. And it's a very, very impressive list of customers and company that you work with. Um, and two, because uh, it's kind of a wrap up. So we'd, we'd love to learn from all of your experiences um, working with all of these companies. I also had a. Uh, I was happy to hear about your seventeen years old dog. You know, my dog is ten years old and. And I'm I'm worried. I don't know when you know when's like the, when's, when is timeout for mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. the dog. So I'm very happy to hear that 17 still uh, you know stroller no stroller, but still you know kicking and and moving. That's cool. Yeah, and he's um you know he's a big dog. He's an 80 pound dog. So we never expected him to last this long. So we we're we're blessed. Hey, you must have provided him with a really good life. Mm. Uh, well, thank you again for joining. Um, this podcast is about category creation, although we also dive into uh, some other personal and, and founder founder path. But maybe I'll kick it off with uh, given your experience working with all of these companies. You said pre-IPO. When you think about um, the Clary, so you know you have the Uber, you have the, the biggest names that everyone knows. Um, Clary is also because of it's in my space. I'm, I'm actually familiar with that company. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? How how early do you did you start working with a company like Clary? Clary, we started working with in 2019. <clears throat> and they're a really interesting company. For anybody who doesn't know, they are a revenue operations platform. And so they help revenue leaders and marketing and sales teams make better decisions around revenue. And they are um, a kind of classic example of what we call the emergent. Um, so we 
have determined that there are six different archetypes um, for you know, archetypes of companies that are category creators. And one of those archetypes is the emergent. And what that means is, especially in startups, often uh, companies have the same idea for category creation at around the same time. And, um, and in Clary's example, they were this emergent category creator where there were Aviso and People.ai and some other companies that were sort of, you know, do it, creating the same category at the same time. But the category leader had not yet been determined by the customer. There were, the customer didn't have the idea that one company was in the lead. And so in that case, when we started working with them, um, the, the, the strategy that they needed to go, go forward with was to frame that emerging category in their favor. And so, you know, the way that they did that was to frame uh, the category of revenue operations around forecasting, because forecasting was something that they were very, very good at, um, and that nobody else could really touch them in that area. And so they, you know, they talked about all the other things they do in the category, but forecasting was a big part of the, the story that they told and their framing of the category. And so, you know, they've been very successful with that. I think, um, Sometime in the last six months, G2 named them the number one revenue operations platform. And um, yeah, they've been, they've been very successful with that framing of the category. Man, you said a bunch of things I'm really interested in. Uh, this is fascinating. So you, you started with them in 2019. Uh, I, I know that they're very successful, grew and, and raised quite a bit of funding on the path there uh, today. So fairly early and then Maybe before I jump into my other questions, particularly in, in comparison for Clary, can you mention the six archetypes that you are sure. referring sure. to? Yeah, the archetypes are the inventor, the overlooked, the emergent, the second act, the better, and the huckster. <laughs> What's the huckster? The huckster is just somebody who talks a good game but can't back it up with any, any real proof. Um, so that could be anybody from something that's sort of a little bit empty like say diapers.com or something that's fraudulent like theranos ah i see i see and the second uh how did you call it the second the second uh... the second act is a classic one it's uh it's a company that has successfully created a category in the first place then they usually get to a place where they realize they need to expand they need to keep growing their business beyond that original category and they either need to create a, a, another category that goes alongside that, that the existing category that, that they're, they're the leader of, or more likely they have to broaden their category idea so that it includes something even bigger so they can continue to expand their offering. Got it. And can you elaborate so, on the other four? So Uber is a, is a classic example of the second act. They, second act. They, 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 they became the category leader of ride sharing no one would say they're just a ride sharing company now. They're in urban logistics or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. I see. Okay. So they 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 became number one on in one aspect of the category, but then they you know then others came and then they started innovating to become number one in others. Uh, yeah. Just become a bigger company. And yeah. What are the other the other four that you mentioned? Uh, the overlooked. The well the. The inventor, the overlooked, we talked about the emergent, we talked about the second act, and the better. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on those? Sure. I, I, I mean, I know I'm interested. You, yeah, I'd be happy to walk you through all of them. So the inventor yeah. is the classic 
company that has a big innovation that is out in front of the world, but the innovation itself is not the same thing as category creation or becoming the category leader because becoming the category leader happens in the mind of the customer. So you can invent an incredibly innovative thing in the world, but it's another thing, another step you have to take to become the leader in the customer's mind. And that's what real, that's what category creation really is. Become, you know, becoming the leader in the mind of the customer. So the inventor needs to figure out some kind of way to meet the customer halfway, because often that innovation is so big that people can't make sense of it. And so the work of the, of the inventor is, is usually to find some halfway point to, between this amazing technology that they have and where their customers' minds are today. Can you give an example of that? That sounds fascinating to me. Uh, yes, I do have actually like, um, I, would, I just did a podcast on this and I'm trying to remember the, the example. Oh, yeah, we had a really nice example of this. Um, we have a client called uh, Kinetics. Mm -hmm. And they have an insole, a smart insole that has 48 pressure and velocity sensors in it. And you put these in your shoe or you have a shoe that's you know, designed with the insole in it. And if you track that information um, on both feet and you build software that you know, really can make sense of it, you're going to get much better information about human movement than you ever would with any other kind of device, any like a tracker that goes on your wrist or a phone or whatever, like it's not going to get anywhere near the kind of high resolution data about um, the you know, movement of the body. And, um, but it's a hard thing to then go to customers and have them make sense of it. Cause it's like, well, it's a smart insole has 48 sensors in it. Right. It, it doesn't necessarily make me go, Oh my God, this is going to be revolutionary to, um, to athletes and, um, fitness, fitness aficionados and medicine and things like that. And so what kinetics did, um, was very smartly, they came up with this idea of the human kinosome. And the human kinosome is like the human genome. It is a map and almost fingerprint uh, of human movement. Hmm. And they're basically saying that with their smart insole, this is the, the first time that they've been able to map the human kinosome. And when they tell people it's like the human genome, but for, but for movement, people start to understand, oh, there's all kinds of technological breakthroughs that can come from just knowing that information. Fascinating. I see what you, what you did there. And so uh, they're, yeah, so, so they innovated something really big, but they found this, this halfway point to, to describe to customers so, uh, so, that, so that it could really become meaningful and, 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 and they could understand just how big it was. That's cool. Uh, what about the other three? Um, I, I think, I, I don't know about the other people are listening, but I'm already starting to try to, to decipher which one do we fit into. Uh, what about the other uh -huh. type, uh -huh. archetypes? Well, tell me a little bit, tell me about where you are. I, I was just on your website and I was like, I, I need this. I need metadata for my own company, but do you want to tell me a little bit about where you are and I can help yeah. you figure out? Absolutely. That's, what do you call your great. category? You know, we just announced um, ourselves, and we're actually doing a big press conference later today um, about being the first operating system for the B two B marketer. We we started, 
you know, innovation is, uh, is I, it's what I still consider to be our competitive advantage. We built good amount of tech in the, in the space that is not, doesn't have usually a lot of tech. So in, we're in the sales and marketing technology space. Um, there's a lot of messaging, a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of sales and a lot of good marketing, but vast majority of the companies in the space don't, didn't invest, you know, years into, um, into the technology. Uh, but we have, for us, you know, I'm a software engineer by background, so that's kind of the, my, my comfort zone, if you will. Uh, so we built, we, we, the vision for Metadata was to build an operating system, something like Salesforce, but for marketers, a place that you mm. can uh, log in every day. And unlike most technologies and most applications, even if you're not logged in, the system still does a lot of work for you. It has this decision tree that essentially automates all the technical repetitive mundane tasks that a B2B marketer has to do. Anything from you know, building audience segments to enriching leads, to executing campaigns automatically, to creating copy, uh, to testing out an experiment with a lot of different permutations, so on and so forth. And we started with demand generation because we realized, well, if we do demand generation and marketers, thanks to this technology, can build predictable pipeline that closes into revenue, then they essentially earn a seat at the table and they don't have to worry about getting kicked out within a year and a half, which is the, you know, the average tenor for marketer. Uh, but now that we've done that, you know, we've been around for six years, three years was just building the colonial technology, three, four years, last two years go to market. Uh, now we feel like we ourselves earned the, earned the right to go and execute our bigger vision, which is to build this operating system. Um, does the space exist? I don't know. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure that out. And do you, do you perceive, I mean, most of the clients that we have when I talk to CEOs, they, they often say we don't have any competitors and, and sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not, but do you, do you, do you think there are other companies that have also created something similar or yeah. do you feel like you stand alone? It's a combination. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely familiar with that conundrum of, of CEO saying, oh, we don't have any competition. You know, um, when I used to work for Spotfire, uh, this BI tool, when they, when they asked me like, who is your competition? Is it Cognos? Is it, is it ClickView? Is it Tableau? The truth is vast majority of the time we replace people doing work with spreadsheets. And it's not too different for us. Vast majority of, the, uh, of, of what we do today, you know, even in Salesforce, when we put the, the competition, if it's, in, if it's in there more than 50% of the time, it's people doing things, things manually or uh, leveraging agencies to do this technical repetitive mundane work. That said, I'm not oblivious to the fact that we are not operating in a vacuum. And there are companies like Zoom Info or Sixth Sense or Demandbase or Terminus that might be perceived as a combat marketing or you know they they're starting to like go into the CDP category because it, that's that's sexier and that's that's kind of the new thing. So they play around with different with the different acronyms and the different spaces. Uh, but if you kind of combine some of these technologies with the status quo. That kind of represents our our competition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So status quo like spreadsheets. I wouldn't that 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 would if if that was your only competition, that would make you the inventor, right? Um, there's a couple of others that you could be, and it may take a little time to think about it to decide who you think you are. But um, one is the overlooked. You could also be that. The overlooked is. Um, a company that people lump into an existing category, but people have it wrong, right? 
So an example of that is Qualtrics from five years ago. People lump them in with surveys like SurveyMonkey and Medallia, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the folks at Qualtrics knew that they were something much bigger than that. And they figured out how to put, you know, the right words to it. And they came out as the first experience management platform. So they went from the overlooked to, okay, now we're a category creator, right? Um, that uh, you would be that um, archetype if you feel like customers and analysts are sort of lumping you in with an existing category, but it's not true. You know, it's, it's fascinating. First of all, it's, uh, it's very interesting to hear you analyze this in real time. Uh, definitely looks like you have a lot of experience because you can do a pattern recognition pretty quickly. You were talking mm -hmm. about customers versus analysts. Even when you mentioned, um, you know, when you mentioned the six types, you said, you know, the customer hasn't yet determined, you know, the, the, the category leader. You haven't said analysts until this a moment ago. And I wrote it down as a comment. Uh, we haven't really worked with analysts at all. You also mentioned G2, uh, which to me represents the customer a lot more, more of, more of a Yelp for, mm -hmm. for SaaS, you know, like definitely mm -hmm. represents more of the customer. Um, and we've done really well with, with G2. Like we have, you know, very good, you know, a lot of reviews, very high reviews. And that's kind of what got us uh, a seat at the table because, you know, we're, uh, for many years, we were underfunded and we would compete with companies that are, that raised 10, 20 X what we did. And so we didn't have the money to advertise and, and uh, be included. But what we could do is because of the reviews, when they looked into one of our competitors, they would also realize, oh, Metadata is over, also there. And that's how we would win. Um, mm -hmm. so tell me mm -hmm. a, little, a little bit about customers versus analysts and how do you, mm -hmm. how do you think about all of this? Yeah. Well, analysts come up in conversations all the time. Most of our clients are really interested in having analysts say that whatever category they're creating is uh, officially a new category that you know people in companies are going to have as a line item in their budget, um, and that's certainly um, that's certainly the dream and maybe top of the mountain for category creation. But there's a lot of other um, ways that you can do category creation that don't depend on analysts um, saying we've decided that this is a new category. Um, because what really matters is what happens in the mind of the customer. And um, when you come out with your new category and you evangelize it, all that really matters is that you're, the customers that you're going after, enough of them think this is a new category, this is its own thing. And these guys are the leader of it. Um, and so that can happen without analysts necessarily saying that I've decided that this is a category. And more and more analysts don't want, um, my sense of it is that more and more analysts don't necessarily want to um, take the category name that companies have come up with. They want to be the ones that name the category. And so they, you know, they, they have a reason to kind of want to go their own way. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of their, you know, that's probably what they're proud of, right? Uh, of, mm -hmm. of creating those, those perceptions on their own versus being scripted even by a high paying customer. So do you consider those to be like the old way and new way of, of category creation? The, you know, one way is the, the old way is kind of doing the whole analyst play, getting the cool vendors, getting the, the wave or the magic coordinate, whatever, and, and getting there and the new way of doing the evangelism. I think Dave Gearhart talked about 
being your own in, in the Gary Varanchuk uh, to being your own media company, essentially doing the evangelism on your own, mm -hmm. getting a critical mass of customers to agree with you, and that will create. Do, yeah. do you consider that the old and new way, or how do you see that? No, I don't consider it that that way. I I I prefer more of an all of the above approach. You know, we, if, if you're going to create a category, it's going to be um, challenging, and you're going to ha have a lot of um, kind of headwinds and. So you need to kind of pull every lever that you can, but ultimately the decider is the customer's mind. It's not the analyst. That's cool to hear. And what do you think G2's uh, role in and G2 and Trust Radius and the other review sites in this in this game? I think it's similar to analysts in that it's a it's a third party that people give a lot of credibility to and really um, can offer a lot of social proof that um, in your communications that you've actually have created this category and that you're the leader of it. You know, um, when, we just, when we just started, I told you this is gonna be kind of the last episode of Category Creators and you, mm -hmm. you, uh, you volunteered to talk a little bit about your founder experience. Uh, is, is, were you a founder prior or were you referring to a, to the current company that you're that you're running, I this company. I'm the founder of Goldfront, and while I'm different than um, most founders that I work with because we're not a um, startup, um, I am a category creator, and I have many of the same problems that I'm trying to solve as my clients, and many of the same fears and ambitions, and you know we're trying to. Um, get our category category design studio out into the world. We're trying to get it to tip in the mind of our customers. We've got a long journey to go with that. We just started with this uh, with this category a year and a half ago, and um, I've got some sort of successes and failures that I can share with my CEO clients and uh, you know founder clients that make it sort of easier to relate to the work that they're doing. You have some street grid. And uh, how, long, how long ago did you start Goldfront? A, a we year started ago, Goldfront, no? I, I think it's like eight years ago. Yeah. Eight years ago. Okay, yep. very cool. Mm -hmm. And when you think about your own competition, like I think category designers and there are a bunch of, of, of companies like that, how, how, do you, how do you think about your own competition in your category? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I kind of love the whole world of category design. Um, so, you know, there's... Play Bigger is the original category design consultancy. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we work with them sometimes and they're also friends. Um, there's also uh, Category Design Advisors, which is another uh, category design consultancy. Um, I know you had Kevin uh, Manny on the show. Mm -hmm. and I, was, I was listening to that before, before this. Um, great show. And, um, and, and you know it's a it's a pretty small group of um, professionals. You know there there aren't that many category design consultancies. We're the only category design studio, so we're the only ones that um, that do all of the creative execution that you would. Need I see. Once okay. Do, yeah. Once you do the the strategy, um, is that your differentiation, or is that one of the differentiations? Yeah. yeah that's it. That's it. Yeah. It's really interesting because we get. Um, Generally, we get two kinds of opportunities that come in. 
One is a client needs a rebrand, a, a startup needs a rebrand usually, and they are they're comparing us to um, brand studios, right? And we come in and say, well, we do brand design, but the strategy that we're going to give you is category strategy. And here's why we think it's better. And then we stand out in that situation. And if they want to do category design and they want to rebrand, then we're kind of the, the only choice. And then on the other side, we'll have uh, companies that come in that just um, want to do category design. And in that case, we stand out because we, we do the strategy piece of it, but we also do all the creative execution that you would need. So if you need to rebrand after that, rename your company, campaigns, video, we do all that through a category lens. And so I'm a huge convert to category design because I've seen it work for our company. And it's really, really nice in a sales situation to know that you stand alone, even if they don't choose you. It's great to know that they have a simple criteria by which to decide to hire you or not. Absolutely. It's super clear. You said that's it. Uh, that's, that's a differentiation. So you're very clear about who you are. And I think it's very easy for customers to choose that way. Uh, what about strategic narrative? How do you, do, you, do you find strategic narrative to be a part of a component in, in category creation? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I am a strategic narrative nerd. I'm a writer, I'm an aspiring screenwriter. And so strategic narrative and screenwriting, it's like they go hand in hand um, because a great strategic narrative has all the same major story points as a great screenplay. Um, and so, yeah. The like the protagonist and things like that? Yes, yep, yeah. And it has a, um, in screenwriting, they call it an inciting incident. In strategic narrative, we call it the shift. Um, it's th there's something that has sort of thrown the world out of order um, recently in the shift. And in a screenplay like um, Finding Nemo, there's an insight. The inciting incident is that uh, Nemo gets lost at sea, right? That's the thing that throws the world out of order. But uh, yeah, so. Um, coming up with strategic narratives and working on those, you know, collaborating on them with our founder clients is probably the most fun um, that I'll ever have during strategy. And it, sometimes it's a little bit, you know, um, there's a lot of uh, moments where we are doubting the narrative we're doubting our own ideas. We're saying, no, no, it needs to be this, where we might be arguing or disagreeing. And then there's moments of exhilaration because we think we found the solution. And then we share it with other executives and they're like, well, not quite. And, you know, it's, it's really wonderful when you get it all working. And then, you know, for example, um, one of our CEOs will send it to their investors and their, inv their investor, who they really, you know, they really take their advice seriously. Their investor is like, this is amazing. You know, that is the best feeling. So yeah, strategic narrative, that's a core of, of what we do for strategy. Very cool. Um, so there are the six archetypes, there's strategic narrative, there's the, there's the branding, there's the creative. Um, what else? What, what is, what is your process? Sounds like you, you really nailed, you have a very uh, good flow of, of setting this up. What is your process of working with? Do you usually work with the CEO? Like who is your main 
point of contact uh, working yeah, with, your, with we'll, the company? Yeah, we'll only do category design um, directly with CEOs um, because it just doesn't really work if the CEO is not the main champion of category design. What do you think that that's the case? Why do I think it's the case? Because the wonderful thing about category design and uh, is that it, it's a whole company strategy. Um, it really works because it's not brand strategy. It's not something that if you gave it to a product person, they'd be like, well, this is the brand. I'm not sure I necessarily need to follow this. Category strategy is one that you do with the CEO, chief product officer, CMO, whoever's running sales, and everybody agrees you know, this is the, this is the, this is the North star for everything that we're going to do. So it's not just going to be what we say out in the world, but it's going to change our product roadmap. And, um, we not, not only have to show people what this thing is, but we have to prove it with the product and everything that we do. And right. so that's, that's why, you know, the, the CEO needs to be the person who's, who's running that. I see. Would you, would you say that Clary and, uh, and Uber and, um, uh, Qualtrics changed your product significantly after after the category exercise that you did with them. Changed our product. Changed their product. Oh, changed their product. Oh yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, you know, I I don't know about Clary because they really had it all together. They, 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 they had the roadmap already. They just needed more of the story, the category messaging. Um, I see. So different yeah. companies may have gaps in different areas. Yeah. 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 And I think it was, I think it was sort of similar with Qualtrics. So if, if a company has a really good product vision and they know that that's a category creating product vision, then they may lean a little, the help they need may be more in the area of story. Fascinating. Tell me, um, that's like half a founder path question, half a category creation question. Tell me about the hashtag fail moment where you did not succeed, you know, for whatever reason, just didn't work with the CEO or the company wasn't there or mm. they were not creating a category. And just a, one of those uh, in the last eight years, one of those moments where you really felt like those, uh, that, that was a failure. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, the times when it doesn't work, they, it typically tends to be because the CEO is less involved than we thought that they were going to be, or that the perception of what we're doing is different than a whole company strategy. So mm -hmm. um, I can't name any names when I talk about negative stories, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that, you know, we had one client mm -hmm. who you know, we, we thought going in that they thought it was going to be a whole company strategy, but it became clear as we worked that they really just wanted sort of marketing messaging. Um, and, you know, it was, it was something that they ended up using at a conference, but it, it just sort of went by the wayside because they, they didn't perceive it to be, this is a whole company strategy. And that's happened a few times. That makes sense. And that makes sense that that's why you want to work with CEOs only. And um, so we, we were, I started asking you about, about the process and, and then interrupted you with other questions. What, what is your process for working with companies, working with CEOs sure. to figure out their category from kind of start yeah. to finish? 
Yeah, I mean, it starts with sales. So during the sales process, we really want to make sure that we have a few fundamental points of agreement. One is what big goal is our client trying to achieve? We want to know some kind of concrete number. We want them 3x um, revenue in the next 18 months. Um, Love that. <laughs> Um, two is what, and it, actually this comes before, um, before, before that one is what are you, what industry are you trying to transform? And then three is how is it that category design or category creation, um, can help you achieve those goals. And, um, so I think it's really important during the sales process that we, we, and the founders and, you know, everybody on the client team, we, we have some agreement around like, what are we really trying to do here? Is it, are we going after a really big goal? And do we feel that category design is the greatest point of leverage um, in order to, to get there? And, um, and so then once we, you know, are hired, if we're hired, um, and once we get started, we take a couple of weeks to immerse ourselves in what our client is doing um, adjacent categories, competitors, kind of reading everything. We'll do a series of stakeholder interviews. So we usually do eight to 10 stakeholder interviews. Usually it's just with our, our client, but we also do uh, customer stakeholder interviews. At 101, yeah. Excuse me? 101, like, uh, or group interviews? One-on-one, -on -one. Uh -huh. yeah. And, um, you know, at that time, we're all talking and just trying to get our heads around everything. And we're starting to kind of come up with our first ideas of what the category is. Sometimes clients have a really good idea of what they think the category is. Sometimes they're not sure. Um, but we want to go into the first couple workshops with already with some ideas formed so that we can sort of ask about the ideas that we have. Then we'll do two um, workshops. And they're, we call them the category POV workshops. And we'll get, it'll be the um, CEO and any co-founders, um, whoever runs product, sales, marketing, um, and, and usually a couple other executives will all be there together. We'll run these interactive workshops in Miro um, to really dig deep on a few questions. What problem do you uniquely solve? Um, what, who is the customer? Um, what is your vision for the future? What give, tell me what it's going to look like in the future for your customer. If you are ultimately successful, what is the, the name of the category? What's the, what's the offering? What, what are the features or benefits of that category? And then can you give us a couple examples of, um, of successful outcomes for customers? case studies, any, anything like that. Um, and once we've got all that information, then we'll go off and write the category POV and we'll come back. And I would say um, it's interesting because during workshops, it can feel like a little bit like you're, you're lost in the woods. It, it can feel like, oh, well, aren't we here in the workshop to solve this thing? But we're not really in the workshop to solve it. We're here to be a little bit like, we don't know what's going on and let's get all the ideas out and, and um but once we come back with the category POV, I would say at that point, about 60% of the time, our clients are like, we love this. We can't believe how fast you got your heads around this. Um, 
And then I'd say 40% of the time we still have some work to do. But that category POV is a three-page strategic narrative. It, it nails all of the key um, strategic ideas that we need to solve for. So if we have it in that narrative, we have, we have the kind of core ideas that you would need for like a messaging house or any of the other kind of strategic documents that would come from that. Who writes um, that narrative? Uh, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Larry, our um, executive strategy director, or one of the other strategy directors. Um, we also have a, a creative director who specializes, who's a writer who specializes on the, the strategy side. Very cool. But I see it all and um, am very involved in, in that piece of it because I really, I really, really want the strategy to be good and really logical and make sense. Um, because it affects all of the work that we do after that. And then we have a couple other workshops. We do a, a category blueprint. So that's a scheme, uh, sort of schematic of almost, almost like some people call it architecture of um, what the category is and how it works. And then we have a, another workshop around category launch. So now, now that we've defined the category, we need to talk about how we're going to go out and launch it into the world. And we want a launch day where the category is suddenly here and it exists and the day before that it didn't exist. So it can feel like, hey, something really big has happened and we're gonna encourage our clients to put as much energy and um, investment behind that, that moment or that week as, as they can. And then there's, um, and then once we've actually helped them with the planning of category launch, we'll move into creative. And some, sometimes our clients want to rename their company at that point to go with the category strategy. Um, often they want to rebrand to go with the strategy. So that's what we did for Clary. Um, and we'll move into sometimes campaigns, video. We do in-house video production and it's sort of a, another love of ours. Um, so yeah, whatever we can do to be useful and help them, um, kind of execute on the category. And that piece of it is so important because you can have the strategy and you can have something that you could send to an investor that the investor is excited about. But if you, if you fail on the execution, it's not really worth that much. Amen to that. Every, every time for, for startups, if you fail on the execution and nothing really happened. Yeah. Um, is this like is there like a start and an end to this process and then you're you're done or is there some sort of do you still work with Clary? Do you still work with the uber and and uh, uh -huh. and you do yeah uh actually uh we haven't worked for uber in a while uh and are still in contact with Clary but haven't done a project for them uh, for a while and most of our clients we're doing the category strategy and then the category launch um, we do, we do also do campaigns, but sometimes the campaigns are for more mature companies. So like we do campaigns for Robin hood, but we didn't do their category strategy. Mm. Um, so it just depends, but most of our clients we're we're coming in doing the strategy and then rebrand and helping them launch. And then they're taking it from there. What's your end goal for, for your company? Ah, that's a really good question. Um, I want to be happy. That's my end goal. <laughs> um, and it's, it, you know, and some days I am and some days I'm, I'm not, but, um, you know, my, my ultimate um, desire for this would be to grow uh, the studio, 
and uh, and sell it someday um, and allow it to get the kind of investment that it would need to become sort of the um, IDO of category design. Got it. Beautiful. Um, That's a clear goal. Yeah. And, um, and also I, I have sort of procrastinated on making uh, films for my whole career. I've been doing um, advertising and strategy and brand and now category for 25 years. And I want to get back to, I want to make movies. And um, if I, if I am so lucky to uh, sell the company someday, I'd like to spend, you know, at least, you know, more time writing movies and making them. Love that. Uh, when you said, uh, I want to be happy, that it reminded me uh, sometimes when I talk to my wife and, uh, and uh, you know, it's like there is a celebration with a startup and she always likes to do this thing. You know, uh -huh. when, I, when I talk uh -huh. about it, the manic depression, it, it's happy, it's sad and happy, it's sad. Uh, it's a roller coaster. It's, it's just a life that we kind of chose to have. Yeah. Um, but that, that's funny. I, I, I liked hearing you say that. What, do you ever get to combine your passion and love for screenwriting and your, your interest in, in doing a movie with a category creation? Have you, have you ever created a, a movie or a, or a commercial or something and you know, kind of you know, got some Hollywood actors, I don't know, combined the two a little mm -hmm. bit? Mm -hmm. Well, we, get to, we make TV commercials and um, videos all the time. And so mm -hmm. I, get to, I get to use that, um, that interest and that skill of mine a lot. Um, casting and writing dialogue and writing scripts and um, directing and things like that. But um, that's, it's really interesting. I, it, would, it, it would be really interesting to apply category design to the first movie that I make. You know, why does it need to be a movie? Maybe it's a new category of movie um, that, I, that I write and direct. So yeah, I'd definitely be interested in applying category design to the things that I do beyond this. I immediately uh, thought about uh, that movie, the last episode of um, Black Mirror, where you get to play, you know, you get to decide. Exactly, exactly. yep, yeah. The interactive movie, yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, can you tell me in the last eight years, what is uh, kind of the biggest project you're proud of, the, the, the thing you're most proud of that, mm. that happened, that you did? It's funny because in the, in the office, just in the studio, there's a, a project that we did where I, it was a, a very short, video that we did of a very short project. We had a client come in and they were a category creator and they said, we need a video. And um, I said, okay, well, videos, like the range of costs would be about this much. And they said, well, we don't have that much. We only have, I think it was something like $30,000. And, you know, we, we were kind of a, a small scrappy studio, but they wanted a live action video for that much. And um, normally I would just say no, but I said, well, if we could just only do it ourselves, we're the actors, it's all of our gear. We do it in our office. We don't, we, we do, we, from writing the script to shooting it, to doing all the post-production, it's done in two weeks. 
then we could do this and we could actually be profitable doing that. And so that's what we did. And I was one of the two actors in it. It was like me and another, um, and a, and a copywriter that worked for me. And I, it, it's not, it's certainly not, um, one of our best videos, but it's something I'm, I'm really proud of. And that, that was a lot of fun to work on. That's so creative. I love the fact that you didn't say no and you figured out how to say yes. We'd love to see a, a link to that video if you can ever share. That sounds sure. Like, yeah, uh... I'd be happy to. Yeah, I mean, really, the 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 client had a lot of courage and they they said yes to something that normally um, ninety nine percent of clients would not say yes to. Like, hey, this can be profitable for us if we do it in exactly this way, and you've got to agree to these terms. And they're like, yes, we believe in you, and and that and you know, I think for their business, it turned out really good. That's where the magic happens. That's yeah. awesome. Um, what advice do you have for uh, when your pre IPO is is uh, I don't know I consider that fairly late. But what do you uh, what what advice do you have for companies who just raised their A, just raised their B? Uh, they want to be creating their own categories. They want to be the number one in their categories. Um, where should yeah. they get started? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think of it as there's two essential things that the founder of a startup needs to concern themselves with. I'm sure there's many more, but the two things that I think of is that thing that you're inventing and how your customers will understand it. And if you are a startup and you're taking a lot of investment, you're basically telling your investors, we are going to transform or disrupt an entire industry. And that makes you um, by definition, a, an aspiring category creator. There is no version of we're going to transform an entire industry that is like we're going to make something that's incrementally better than something that already exists, right? And so, you know, going back to those two things, that thing that you're making and then um, convincing customers that that's something totally new in the world, Right. And I think you can do that on as small or big uh, of a, um, um, uh, you can can do it in a very small way. So if you have no investment whatsoever, you can come up with, hey, I've got this idea for an innovation. Now, is that something that is a new category? And you compare those two and you use them to, you, you can use the two things to inform each other. Um, oh, uh, yes, I've got this innovation, but it's that would still make it just in, a, in an existing category, but it's, it's sort of an incremental improvement. Okay, then I need to go back to the thing that I'm inventing and make that bigger. Okay, now I've made it bigger. Okay, how am I going to convince? How, now it's big enough to be a category, but I don't have the words to say that. Um, now I've got to figure out how to put that story together so people can understand it as a new category and what it really is. And I think that I, I really like that model for um, for what the founder of a startup should be doing, and that that you can do those um, those two activities in very small ways. When you come up with your innovation at the beginning, you, hey MVP, let's just like put like put something together and see what it is. And you can do the same thing with category design. You can come up with you know, just like oh well, I've got a I've got a just a name for what the category is in a single sentence. That can be your category design when you're when you're just starting out, and then you can scale up those activities as you go. It's, it almost sounds like a decision making framework, whether it's early yes, or early exactly. on or later. Yeah, yeah, that's how I think of it.
Josh, it was uh, such a pleasure talking to you. You're a wealth uh, of, uh, of knowledge uh, about category creation. So thank you for sharing all of that. Bye bye, you too. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and we'll tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.